1: Welcome everyone. This is your podcast, New Books in Economic and Business History. I'm your host, Javier Mejia from Stanford University. For today I have the great pleasure to be with Didad Keralt. He's an assistant professor in the Department of Political Science at Yale University. And he's the author of uh, a book that is going to be published pretty soon by Princeton University Press called Pound States state building in the era of international finance. Hi Dag, thanks a lot for being here with us.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: So I would like to start uh, with uh, knowing a bit more about your career, right? So I met you a few years ago in Abu Dhabi at an economic history workshop, um, but you're a political scientist, and uh, I would like to know how did you end up interested in this broad topics on the history of uh, the state and its fiscal capacity. Um, Tell us more about who you are and how you ended up being interested in these topics.
0: Yeah, so uh, I'm uh, basically interested in political economic history. This is a growing field in political science that basically borrows from um uh, the classics in political science, but also recent and, and classic um, uh, or canonical work in economic history and, and economics and um so I guess that everybody's uh path is a little bit idiosyncratic in my case i I joined the PhD program at NYU more than a decade ago now uh, with an interest in the welfare state and how basically uh, uh, different states in, in Western Europe um, address uh, different types of, of what they call social risk. And then I realized that, uh, that, that not every state raised the same amount of taxes, right? That, that was a clear constraint for some states to deliver certain certain goods. But then my, my interest gradually switched from uh, Western Europe in basically the last um, four decades to um, uh, all around the world, basically, at least uh, in the last 200 years. And that's basically the result of taking two Graduate seminars and interacting, interacting uh, regularly with with two amazing scholars, Adam Chworski, uh, the chair uh, of my my in my dissertation, my chair. I I, I took one one course with him uh, on. I, I think it was titled History and Politics, and so. Um, Adam Chaworski, he's, he's likely he's most likely the, the the most brilliant mind I've ever met, and and it was basically a, a, a mind blowing course. We we uh, we studied um, recent contributions in economics, economic history, dealing with historical political economy, but we also uh, read some of the classics like uh, Das Capital, and and it was it was such a, a, a an ent- entertaining and illuminating course and 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 the other um the other um uh mentor um and and and, and instructor that I had uh, at NYU was David Stasavage um, who basically is one of these few uh individuals that 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 can see uh common patterns across time and space uh which is is, is a gift and and it was so so illuminating to take that course and and to see how uh, theories can travel um, and 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 also identify the scope conditions under which some some theories uh, apply. And basically, that was uh, the I think that the 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 the, the reason that I that I became interested in in this topic in my dissertation. I had a little bit of historical political economy, but it was more focused on modern day mercantilist agreements. Um, so I I published those those papers um, in political science, and and then I. I switched to this second project on, on on external finance that basically ended up being uh, a book. Uh, so that was basically how I, I, I got to this point.
1: Let me ask you a bit more about, um, I guess, your identity as a scholar and, and how do you perceive your work in this field that you describe as a um political economic history, I guess, uh, that it's growing in political science. And and I guess what I would like to know is how you um, navigate the fact that many of the people that are interested in what you do are probably in other departments, right, in economics or in economic history um, or even in history. Um, how do you talk to that people? These are communities that probably have different codes, and also, how do you perceive your work uh, as being appreciated in, in, in your own department, right, in, in your own discipline? Um, how do you think about these these issues? Uh,
0: yes, so it's it's not the uh, easiest uh, uh, job to uh, write a book that um, intends to speak to different different fields, uh, at least political science. Economics and economic history, and I hope that individuals, as scholars working on on institutional sociology and, and historians, uh, also find the, the book um, interesting and compelling. Um, so, I, I try to interact as much as possible with with economic historians and, and economists. I attend uh, some of their conferences; they welcome me uh, to participate. I I I I mean. I profess a lot of respect for those uh, disciplines, and I've I've interacted on a regular basis with economic historians when I did my uh, postdoctoral fellowship at the Carlos III University in Madrid. I interacted with economists when I did uh, two years at, at, at the institution uh, IPEC, uh, the Institute of Political Economy and Governance, uh, which was embedded in the economy in the uh, economics department at Pompeo Fabra. So I basically tried to learn as much as possible. But I also think that there is a room in in this field for political scientists. Uh, we we seek to. Um, uh, um, answer slightly different types of questions. Um, We are more interested in Identifying the incentives of of rulers and and opposition and and groups to basically implement policy, influence policy, and and put forward institutional reform, and those are the kind of of uh, research questions that uh, we as political scientists uh, can can say the, the most. And I try to do I try to do my best uh, um, to basically answer these kind of questions while borrowing from. From other fields, and I hope that uh, the readers in, in both in political science science and other and other disciplines like like the result. And and I just want to say that um, to conclude that um, yes, yeah, so it's not the biggest uh, soup field in political science in political science, uh, but it's growing. Uh, there are more people doing fascinating work the Historical political economy, and I'm very happy and, and fortunate uh, 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 of being uh, at uh, the, in a university at a university and in a department that that has a, a, um, um, clearly a, a liking for this kind of research. So I have colleagues in the department that that would be interested in, in what I do, and, and and I mean that's 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 the best part of of the job: talking and uh, about your work, discussing your work, and uh, uh, pushing it forward.
1: That's great. It's, yeah. You know, it's very, um, I guess, hopeful to hear what you say that, it, I mean, there's the idea that in political science, um, these questions on, well, economic history and political history are, are growing. It's it, it's fascinating. Um, at Stanford, Gavin Wright, who is a very respected economic historian, his work for Many decades on, uh, on American history says that, and I think he's being he's trying to be impol to be polite and, and generous. Says that the political science department is where the, the best economic history in the the university is being is being made. But I think he's addressing to what you're describing, right? How the field is growing, and 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 that's um, that's 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 pretty awesome, actually. Um, but let's let's move, I guess, a bit from um, this broad conversation on, on the field and let's talk a bit uh, about your book and let's try to start unpacking um, the main interesting ideas that are there. right? Um, and the, probably the first thing that I'm going to ask you is what is a pound state, right? That's how you decided to call the book, pound states. What what What's that concept? What does it make reference to?
0: So um, it makes uh, reference to um, a practice uh, that became um, uh, frequent, uh, frequent over time in the in the long nineteenth century, by which um, countries with weak uh, economic fundamentals uh, were expected to. Uh, collateralize uh, some of its uh, main sources of revenue, and those could be uh, public monopolies, um, uh, branches of the tax administration and, and infrastructure, in order to access um, uh, capital overseas, and usually in in uh, the London Stock Exchange, that was the the, the main market at the, at the time before 1914. Uh, so because these were countries that had weak economic fundamentals, um, m- many uh, of these uh, loans um, were not uh, repaid uh, in, in uh, basically, in tax money uh, or with tax money. Uh, they were repaid in uh, specie. Uh, so those um, uh, collaterals or those h- hypothecations were uh, foreclosed. And and they were um, put in the hands of uh, foreign private investors, and basically um, the book is uh, one part of the second part of the book is to see exactly what what are the consequences of handing over uh, the main sources of revenue of a country to foreign investors that might not be interested in building capacity but just to repatriate capital, Mm -hmm. and and that's basically what what um, made me. Made me uh, decide to uh, give uh, this name, this name, uh, this name to to the book.
1: Right, right. So let's try to then, like, let's start from the beginning, so we build your entire story, right? So you you begin the book, and the first part of the book is about the expansion of uh, global finance, right? how was how was that process so first how was uh, how did uh, state finance itself before let's say the industrial revolution and what transformed during this period that you explore which is i guess uh, the 19th century and early 20th century
0: yeah so so there i mean there has always been international finance but the the magnitude and the and the geographic scope was very limited. So before the 19th century, before the industrial revolution, um, or yeah, before the 19th century, the the capital of the world was uh, was the the, the the Netherlands, the, the Low Countries. Uh, but this was a very very small uh, international market. So there were basically eight countries uh, floating uh, loans. Um, in the Netherlands, and three out of uh, f- uh, four of those loans were issued by by England. Uh, so basically, that that was the entire international market. Um, but things change after the after uh, the Napoleonic uh, Wars. Um, basically, during the Napoleonic Wars, uh, the United uh, Kingdom or Great Britain. Uh, um, develops um, a big capacity to uh, raise uh, taxes. Uh, so the country is in, in good uh, uh, shape in terms of uh, uh, finance. Uh, they uh, adopted uh, temporarily uh, an income tax, so they don't need as much um debt as they used to uh, as they used to so there is some some uh, debt that is um uh, or some capital that needs some some buyers uh, some borrowers and at the same time this is a period in which uh, we have a massive expansion of of the industrial revolution in 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 great britain so there is a lot of surplus capital uh, floating around um after 1915 and and basically this capital is the that there are countries out there and particularly this begins with latin america um, that that have recently declared independence, and they basically have the entire uh, country to 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 build. Right, so uh, there is some legacy from uh, the Spanish, uh, the Spanish Empire, but but these countries had a lot a lot to to build and and many new services to fund, new infrastructures to 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 build, uh, new uh, bureaucracies to to. To put together, so the, and at the same time, they are also waging wars. Uh, these wars of independence and and then wars of um, of, of uh, consolidation of internal consolidation, and that requires a lot of money. So you have this uh, surplus capital on the one hand, and you have uh, demand for for um, for external finance, and uh, the market does does the rest, and that puts this um, put, puts in motion an an international market. Uh, that, that that is is quite unprecedented in in history. Uh, you also have countries in the in the south of Europe uh, borrowing massively for the first time from. At the London Stock Exchange, and and this is a, a very bumpy uh, road. Uh, there are uh, um, there are basically cycles of of massive growth, followed by by uh, sudden stops of credit, um, and and but then people seem to uh, investors seem to forget, and and you see this uh, explosion again, and and. Basically, by the late 19th century, we have an international capital market that relative to world GDP is three times larger than it was in the in the 1980s, in the end of the 1980s. So this is a big, big uh, phenomenon that um, allows countries with uh, weak economic fundamentals to uh, fund uh, government. in ways that no other country in history uh, had um, had e- even imagined, and the question is that maybe uh, the conditions under which those loans were uh, issued and and the incentives that those loans. Uh, gave to local leaders were not the best ones and uh, some of these countries uh, ended up in in uh, a dead trap and those dead traps are very hard to to solve uh, particularly when the when the when the field is not level and and those carry long-term consequences in terms of um, fiscal capacity but also in terms of, of political institutions basically levels of 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 democratic governance
1: would you like so you mentioned war as one? important force for uh, creating this demand for for funding to states well, what's the what's the deal with war what, what what's the particularity of war versus other type of uh, fiscal needs
0: so um, well what is the single most uh, fiscal shock uh, for any treasury um, what is, is is expensive and it's not productive. So if you invest in other uh, things like uh, railroads, we can discuss about uh, what are the, like the n- negative effects of, of um, uh, railroads, if any. But at least you are uh, um, building the 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 uh, fiscal base. With wars, you are basically destroying things. Uh, <laughs> you are not creating anything. Uh, if war goes well, maybe you can make the, the loser um, compensate for, for the expenses. But losers tend to be bankrupt. So you, it, it's hard for them to pay the full bill, right? And, and, and basically those, those machines, those weapons are, are, are expensive. They are usually imported from from Europe. Um, and there's actually some part of the of the financing business that involves buying, buying military equipment, right? And, and basically those, those, those wars created this massive debt that was uh, hard to, to liquidate for, for many states. And we have to think that this is a period in which um, new countries are created, so these borders are not necessarily stable. There is a lot of war. Going on between countries, there is a lot of civil war going on, um, basically because God, the center is trying to to centralize power, and and there is also imperial competition and proxy wars and and wars between empires, right? So we tend to think of the 19th century as as the as the uh, a hundred uh, what's what's at least the hundred years uh, uh, the hundred year uh, peace but that's a that's a myth uh because that happens uh in uh, western europe in in the in the in the continent right there is very little conflict in the continent but there is a lot of compli- conflict going on in other parts of the, of the world and some of those, uh, those wars were either promoted or waged directly by by european powers so the, the goal of the, of the papers uh, of the paper and the book is to actually see what are the consequences in the short and long run of, of those of those wars around the world.
1: Let's talk about that let's talk about the consequences. So um, uh, your argument seems to be that given this uh, war like large set of uh, shocks associated with war and with other features of uh, uh, state building, you have an entire fraction of the world that required uh, funding and they uh, probably took too much. And eventually that led them to this uh, debt trap that has weakened in the long term. Um, their fiscal capacity and their broader like state capacity, right? Um, that's what I understood from the book. Please give us some of the nuances be behind that,
0: yes. So, so it's not. I mean, the 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 argument is not that they they t- uh, took too much. They issued too too many too many loans. Uh, th- that could be the case, but that's not the argument that I try to do in the book. Is that those those loans came with very perverse conditions, right? So it's not. Uh, it's not that public debt is bad. Public debt is is basically the way that uh, governments have been fun uh, for in Europe for uh, at least uh, 500 years, um, even even longer than that. Um, and it helps um, basically navigate uh, uh, fiscal crisis, uh, pandemic. So that the ability to raise debt is 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 a, is a massive opportunity for nations. The question is, what are the strings attached to, to uh, those, those loans, right? And what we see is that in the 19th century, uh, um, these loans uh, came with what I call extreme conditionality. And this is uh, basically, this brings back to the title of the book. Uh, these loans uh, required uh, countries to pledge. Its main sources of, of of revenue, basically the money cows of the of the countries, and because they the, they loaned a lot and those the the, the main assets were uh, pledged in case of default, they had to give up the main sources of revenue, and that's what uh, basically put many nations into uh, a slippery slope, right? Um, uh, the, the the pledge or the or the conditions of these loans were uh, were executed uh, hypothecation followed and and that reduced the tax base of the nations of the borrowers meaning that they required more external funding to pay the bill and uh, because the chances of uh, defaulting were um, bigger they had to collateralize new, uh, new sources of revenue, so you can see how these cycles can 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 rapidly push any country into into a debt trap, so conditions of loans matter it 's not about the quantity but the conditions. The other thing that I try to convey in this book is that um, this is not only about um, basically nefarious or or extractive investors that uh, uh, soaked. All the resources from the international, from from the new countries and and colonies. I mean, maybe there was some of that, but the, there was some shared responsibility with with local leaders, right? And this is where the political science comes from, because if you don't, so a, a leader needs to finance a, a fiscal shock. War is, is the easiest to identify because we have data sets. We know when they begin and when, when they end, but there are other investments like uh, railroads. Not every railroad is uh, cost-effective, right? Um, um, and they have to decide how they f- uh, fund those massive projects uh, and, and uh, military campaigns. And they can they have basically two major options. They can raise taxes. Right, or they can uh, float uh, or uh, basically issue debt. So uh, if they float ta- if they uh, go with taxes, they might need to grant political rights to taxpayers. Right, the taxpayers might require something in exchange, and this is going to be m- more likely when when the taxpayers um, are, are close to, I mean, geographically close to 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 the center, uh, because they have um, uh, an easier time monitoring. Uh, the terms of 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 this uh, tax bargain, and we know that leaders don't and rulers don't like to share power, right? Um, and and they have to basically uh, let the taxpayers decide whether and how uh, the 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 public funds are spent, and uh, on top of that, they. If, if they raise taxes, uh, if, if they raise taxes to finance a stronger apparatus that is capable of financing the state, they have to invest some of the money to building capacity, to building a bureaucracy. And, and so basically for a leader that seeks to maximize uh, rents from office, those options are not particularly appealing. Right. It reduces the total amount of money and it also reduces the, the discretion, the, the, the amount of power that the ruler has. So on the other hand, the ruler can uh, float alone. And in Europe, there were domestic markets, credit markets. And I'm happy to tell you what's the difference between Europe and and the rest of the world. But in the rest of the world, domestic markets, except uh, in Japan, were completely absent. Right? Or they, I mean, some, some, they were, they were, there was some domestic lending, but it was super expensive. The interest rate was really, really high because the pool of, of capital was, was limited. So most of these uh, leaders uh, borrowed overseas. Um, and the conditions attached to the loans were not necessarily good in the long run, but they were very favorable in the short run for these leaders, right? They could finance the infrastructure or the military campaign. And they were pushing uh, to the future the possible or hypothetical negative consequences of the fault, which is this extreme conditionality, is this uh, uh, foreclosure uh, of, of national assets. Uh, but that, that was a problem of the future. And, for instance, in Latin America, there was a lot of political instability, right? So the chances of being around three years from now, five years from now, were very small. Right, so you could push that those kind of problems to the future. So the the point of the book, and this is a difference with the with the 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 the, liter- the literature on uh, financial imperialism, is that we have a supply and demand problem. Uh, in, we can put it this way. We have lenders that seek to make uh, profit. These are private lenders, not official lenders, private lenders. And we also have uh, local rulers with a set of incentives that might not be the most conducive to, or uh, very particularly conducive to build uh, capacity and um, build stable um, uh, fiscal institutions. So that's basically the, the main message of, of the book, that we have to look at both uh, at both sides to get a full... A picture of, of what happened.
1: Yeah, There are many things that I would like to ask you uh, based on, on your answer to this question, but probably the first one is um, what were the reasons that allowed this uh, thing that you call extreme uh, conditionality, this sort of hard repayment conditions to... Uh, to be defined in this context and probably not in So I'm thinking, as you mentioned, the expansion of, uh, of, uh, of credit in, in Europe in the early pre-modern era, where wars were also uh, a source of, that was motivating those uh, the acquisition of those loans. Um, why that didn't happen in that context and it did happen in this, uh, Period uh, that you're you're studying is this a mission of order of magnitudes? Is there a, a political economy story behind? What, what's 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 your view on that?
0: Yes, uh, so I'd say that there is a political uh, economy story. So the main difference between uh, Western Europe before 1800 and the rest of the world after 1800 is the is the denomination of debt or, or is the owners of, of debt, right? So in Western Europe, most of the debt of the countries that we associate with a strong state capacity um, uh, was uh, issued um, by domestic lenders, right? So it was the the domestic, it's basically the North and Guangas st- story, right? So you have uh, domestic lenders that um, negotiate with the ruler the terms of uh, the uh, debt, and uh, these uh, lenders not only um, lend to the ruler, but they also have a strong monitoring uh, monitoring capacity. Right? They are they are uh, they, they they overcome coordination problems in in monitoring the ruler because they are uh, already. Um, part of a a parliament that uh, has direct communication and and the capacity to know what the ruler is doing with the money. If the ruler defaults, these lenders can basically uh, um, cut uh, finance or they can uh, change, replace the ruler, right? So domestic domestic, um, lending uh, creates very costly default for a ruler. Because uh, basically the the tenure, I mean, the office is is at stake if you default to the people that sustain you in office. Uh, that doesn't happen in the in the nineteenth century because there were no domestic markets, right? So the question, the, the, the point is that exter- defaulting on on external uh, loans was not costless, right? It came with with. Uh, great exclusion uh, and it also came with uh, extreme conditionality with this um, 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 uh, foreclosing of of domestic assets. But uh, that happened uh, in the future, right? And um, those costs had to be compared to the cost of the alternative, which was raising taxes, right? So the rulers had to decide whether they... uh, whether they went for immediate high costs of putting together a tax apparatus or future high costs of defaulting, right? And when your uh, time horizon is, is short, and when your fiscal capacity is so poor that it requires a massive investment of current revenue to, um, to basically uh, raise your, your uh, tax revenue at the end of the year, the option of financing externally becomes very very appealing right and and that's the that's the main difference that in western europe public credit was mostly domestic before 1800 and in the rest of the world public public credit was external mostly
1: okay and that creates okay.
0: completely different political uh, calculations for for the
1: bulls right 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 that makes a lot of sense and and so a fundamental piece of, uh, of your argument is the existence of these uh, debt traps, right? So um, eventually some countries are uh, pushed by this extreme conditionality, um, and that uh, is a problem in the long term, right? And, and I have, I guess, two questions around that issue. So one is, um, I guess, a conceptual one, which is, how different is uh, the pressure of uh, the fault of one of these initial loans from the original pressure of war and so on? I mean, I guess the point is that eventually you need to raise taxes, right? So um, why is that that at some point uh, pressure for state for building uh Uh, state capacity, um, which I guess another way to frame that is what's the end of that trap, right? Like for how long can you uh, coexist and remain in power with this permanent um, rollover of that? And the other question is of, I guess, from a more empirical one, which is you could argue that some countries were able to escape that trap, right? And I was thinking about Japan. I feel that you're going to tell me that Japan had already a more robust domestic lending market. Um, but it was not initially the case, I guess. Uh, and all the stories of uh, gunboat diplomacy like uh, usually come and you, you think about Japan. But anyway, so... Tell me a bit about that. Like, how do you think conceptually and empirically about these uh, debt traps? How pervasive they are? How persistent are they? So, so, so they they are they
0: are pretty con- uh, pretty persistent, and, and there, there is some some um, evidence in the second part of the book that 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 shows that the way that countries financed in the nineteenth century. Um, Explain part of um, part of uh, fiscal capacity in in the 2000s, um, but w- w- when we go to like the the, the detail, um, so those those the, the traps were not not uh, very <laughs> very uh, convenient for for local rulers, but um, and, and there are two two examples in 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 the in the book. Uh, the thing is that. Um, they didn't. Um, the negative consequences of the debt traps were not materialized in the short run. It took it took several decades before uh, basically the the local rulers could not uh, 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 basically keep the uh, could not survive uh, politically with these uh, massive um, uh, exports of of local of local capital. Um, by, by private investors. So, um, for instance, you, you, we have an example, the Ottoman Empire, the Ottoman Empire, it was put under uh, a receivership, basically the, 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 the investors that, that lent to the Ottoman Empire uh, before the 1980s um, took over um, um, several branches of the uh, Ottoman um, tax administration. And basically, they repatriated uh, capital from those branches. So they were not in the business of building capacity. They were in the business of repatriating uh, capital, which doesn't mean, and, and there is, I, I show evidence of that, that there is no, there is no expansion of, of the capacity to tax under the, the, the management of these uh, foreign, foreign investors. And eventually, this situation is unsustainable for, for the sultan. And you see that there is actually a, a revolution. Um, in in the in the nineteen in the 1910s, they, basically there is uh, the, the the young the young Turks uh, take over and they implement some, some reform that actually speak to this um, uh, tax bargaining. The thing is that this period was so short that we don't actually see what's, what are the long term consequences, right? But the point is that in the long run, in the long run, the debt traps were not um, uh, were not favorable to the local elites, and the same can can be said about the Qing, the late Qing dynasty that, uh, basically, um, uh, international finance could, I mean, there were many reasons why the Qing dynasty uh, collapsed. And it, you can basically rely on purely domestic uh, explanations. But on top of the domestic explanations, we can see that these, these loans uh, that were given, uh, that were issued overseas, uh, were extremely unpopular. Uh, uh, among the local population, and that was one of the reasons that that there the, 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 was this revolution uh, in in nineteen in nineteen eleven. Uh, so, but but again, uh, these loans had been there for for decades, and the Qing. Uh, were able to survive, basically to navigate this storm for a few decades until they were deposed. So it's 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 not that external capital is, is free, it's costless, it's that it allows a ruler that is reluctant to share power, to stay in power a little longer, right? And we have to understand that uh, rulers do not maximize welfare, social welfare, that they maximize political survival, right? And and that's why uh, external, external finance ha- might have perverse incentives. So there were countries that navig or, or were basically um, or had rulers that were more forward-looking. Uh, one uh, and, and did not play this game. One was the the case of Japan, right? And it didn't play this game. The, the, the basically with the Meiji Restoration, there was some international uh, finance, and they bought a lot of military equipment. Uh, and it was basically the entire army was was. Uh, was built an, uh, anew uh, with state-of-the-art uh, uh, weapons and, 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 and ships. Uh, but that's where the international finance stopped. Most of the local infrastructure, for instance, most of the tax administration was financed with local credit. Right, So uh, they, they managed to keep international finance under control and there are basically uh, in, in the book there are some preferences of negotiations and discussions uh, within the within the Japanese government about the the, the fears uh, of uh, relying too much on external finance because they saw that what was happening in Latin America they saw what was happening in the Ottoman Empire in Egypt right that basically uh, it, uh, the, the the Europeans were using uh, uh, international finance as a, as a means to take control over countries. But there were other countries that say, "Well, we don't have domestic credit markets, uh, but we don't want to rely on external finance either, so we are going to do our best to to build capacity and to finance our militaries uh, fund our militaries without uh, that that external help and and one of the examples is cm and uh, that was renamed. Uh, Thailand in in the 1930s, and basically this is this is this is an example of how far you can go uh, without without relying on on external capital uh, by basically centralizing fiscal capacity and building a, a, a military over over decades, right? So you you, guess you there is there is some evidence in the, in the in the book that basically there is an expansion of the capacity to, to tax, uh, but eventually. This taxation without uh, sharing powers uh, with taxpayers caused this uh, revolution in the in the nineteen thirties. Um, so there is a limit to what you can do uh, when you tax and you don't and you don't grant uh, political political rights to taxpayers.
1: Okay, so I mean, this I really love your story. By the way, like I find a very compelling um, argument that again as you said, like puts together both the domestic um, incentives and the foreign intentions. And I think that's, that's great. But um, I'm thinking now about how to, how to articulate the persistent dynamics of this, right? And you focus on the spirit that goes until um, basically World War One. But the construction of state capacity has continued ever since right and and you kind of argued that nevertheless, there were this original sin that's called it uh, uh, for the lack of a better word that um that can still like uh, have consequences later on and now I'm thinking that many things have changed in the uh, international finance setting, right? So the other day I was talking to uh, Juan Flores. He's at Geneva. Maybe you've uh, read his his book. Uh, it's called um, Soaring Diplomacy. And he uh, told me about this thing that I was not aware of, I guess, where I, was, I have not paid much attention to it, which is how you have a profound change in the approach of um foreign powers to international debt after world war ii right it became much more friendly uh because of the incentives of the governments during this period specifically the us was not exactly to get the money back but to gain political support and the periphery and so on right um and like that event was beneficial for um for borrowers right so so I guess my question is, how do you think about it? And I, I don't want to make this an unfair question again, because you focus on a different period. But when you think about persistence, how do you think about these other things that have happened afterwards? Um, and do you see this changing in the in the near future? Like how much of this is uh, occurs that it's going to be there for, for a long time?
0: Yes. Yeah. Um... So you are you are absolutely right that a lot of things happen uh, between 1914 and the 2000s. Um, many 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 things. Uh, and and so so let let me begin by saying that in the in the book I'm I'm aware of that and basically have a full chapter about the mechanisms of persistence. Um, and I have uh, basically data that that shows that whatever countries did uh, in the 19th century uh, 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 carried consequences throughout the entire 20th century. So it's I'm not basically regressing to data points that are 90 years apart. Um, I have some, let, let me put it in this way, intermediate uh, data points. Um, um, but uh, more, more more, like uh, substantively, um, uh, what I want to say is that this uh, relaxation of international lending that happens over a few decades after uh, World War I, particularly World War II, Actually, uh, might have made uh, external finance too too cheap uh, again, and, and um, there is one example in the book. I, I mentioned I mentioned it earlier, so let me go back to it. Like uh, Thailand, right? So Thailand actually, uh, because the conditions of external finance became too too favorable. So basically, the in the, in the we are in the other side in the, the other side of the spectrum they borrowed like crazy so they had a lot of military aid but they also borrowed a lot right and you see that by borrowing they stop investing in the tax in the tax administration so i guess that the message is that uh, uh, th- there is a balance between very harsh condition and uh, very favorable conditions um in in, in in lending. Uh, so, of course, lending sh- should be very favorable for countries that are uh, very poor, or that are going through a, a massive crisis. Uh, but but at the same time, we, we have to make sure, and this is, I hope, one of the takeaways of the book, that um, uh, we shouldn't trust anybody that says that uh, external finance is good or that external finance is bad the the effect depends on on the on the conditions of that country and we have to understand and we when I say we now the, those that are in the business of, of lending uh, either in the in the private or the, in in the official sector they have to understand what are the what are the incentives of this uh, uh, windfall of money and they have to anticipate uh, what can go uh, wrong. And uh, in, in basically, in by by backwards induction, they have to find the right the right level of, of um, I don't conditionality, or uh, to make sure that uh, countries still invest in improving their uh, in improving their uh, local capacity. That that in return for for this money, uh, incumbents have to be accountable to the taxpayers. Right. Uh, but at the same time, the conditions should be favorable, favorable enough that allow the countries to basically navigate this economic crisis. So it's, it's, it's a hard problem to solve. But the thing is that the world is not uh, black or white. The, the, the world is uh, full of grace and we have to fine tune. Uh, the, the the policy recommendations uh, to the local characteristics. Each country is a little bit different, and for that reason, policy has to be slightly different for for each country. Um, now, in terms of or uh, in terms of what happens today, and how can we compare finance in the past to finance today? Uh, because I get that question a lot, like uh, wh- what can we learn, right? So, so there are basically two similarities that I would like to to emphasize. One is that um, everything else constant, external finance is is, is uh, cheap money, and we have to understand that incentives to uh, raise taxes relax when you have this source of money, right? So, so we have to be uh, to be aware of that and maybe compensate that uh doing other things for instance uh conditionality or but that conditionality has to be um uh, fine-tuned too the other uh the other takeaway from that period is that directed directed um, um state building meaning that state building not conducted by locals but conducted by foreigners right in the past it was private investors that took over these branches of the tax administration, and today we have these um, uh, uh, people from the IMF, these bureaucrats, uh, they have very different incentives and they don't chase the same goals. They have different objective functions. But my sense is that either way, it is very hard to build, uh, to build uh, institutions from outside right those institutions and this is a, a phrase that i got from my uh, advisor Adam teworski uh, uh institutions are endogenous democracy is endogenous right so th- things will only work you will only b- build capacity if uh, actors if the if the incentives of the actors are aligned otherwise uh, it it is really 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 hard and i'm skeptical that 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 is possible so I mentioned what are the similarities, so what are the differences? And there are many differences, okay? Um, the first one is that in the period that I study, most of the lending is private. So there is very little official lending. And that has changed radically these days. So there is a, a, a political scientist, uh, Jonas Bunte, who uh, has done an amazing, has written an amazing book about uh, finance, uh, sources of finance. Uh, in the modern period. Uh, by modern, I mean today. <laughs> uh, and basically, he shows that uh, only 11% of international lending is purely private these days. Right? So,
1: you mean are, private here is that both the borrower and the lender are private or?
0: Uh, private by the source of origin. So, this data is uh, about f- sovereign uh, uh, loans. But the issuers of the, or, or the the lenders, right, only 8% are only private. So there are private institutions that collaborate with official lenders, right? But the only private is 11%. And basically in the 19th century, the period that I studied in the book, was basically 99% or 90%, okay? Because there was some finance, colonial finance, but that was 10%. So, so, so the the incentives of the lenders matter because the private investors are in the business of making money right so when they lend they expect to make money the international institutions nowadays are hopefully <laughs> in the business of building capacity and helping countries right so this is a big difference so we cannot extrapolate what happened in the 1914 before the 1914 to to the to the world today uh, for for that reason and, and and other reasons, we have also the IMF. So conditionality is conditionality today is centered at building capacity, is not centered at repatriating capital, um, and also the the principle of uh, uh, sovereign immunity, the uh, judicial principle of of sovereign immunity, the ability of sue a country. In the 19th century, uh, that wasn't possible. So, what I talk about extreme conditionality, these are all political solutions, right? But beginning in the 1970s, this sovereignty immunity relaxed, and now countries can sue, uh, 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 sorry, now lenders can sue countries that have uh, interrupted that service. So, you are adding a, a judicial, non military, non political path towards solving default episodes that was absent in the 19th century. So what's the takeaway? So if anybody that reads this book wants to say, well, why do I care if I only study the present era? It's basically that this book tells us that the origins of weak economic and political fundamentals in the developing world today can be traced back at least to the 90th century. So that in order to get a fuller picture, we need to take to get a full underst- an understanding of where current and their development comes from. So that's basically the, the, the takeaway to uh, readers of this book that are interested in, in, in current events. That but,
1: was a long answer. No, but that, that was great. And, and it's a great way to take me to, um, to, I guess, uh, the way in which you think that your work fits into this larger set of ideas on on imperialism right um in a certain way you're describing how the the faith of a good part of the world depended on the interests of this superpowers um but you provide a very granular like description of that mechanism right so i guess what i would like to ask you is how do you perceive that um, your work help us understand why we look the way we look because of this geopolitical forces and how that fits into a larger uh, understanding of why some countries are wealthier than others. And here I'm, of course, asking you to speculate a bit, um, but um, how do you perceive this broad conversation, right? How important we're Imperial powers for the long-term development of, um, of of the rest of the world.
0: Yes, so so there are two aspects of of, of colonialism. Uh, sorry, of imperialism. One is colonialism, and I think that um, I think it's it's more than uh, uh, proof that it impacted uh, long-term development, economic development, and, and political institutions. Um, but the the, the, the the truth is that only um, so I competed this for the for the for the British for the British um, uh, market, which was the main market uh, in the nineteenth century. Uh, like I, I think I said, like ten percent, may, maybe thirteen percent. I think that's the right number. Thirteen percent of of these loans went to to colonies, right? So so most of the most of like the imperialism focused on the sovereign uh, states at the time, and these were new uh, countries. New independent countries, but also the old, by about uh, traditionally isolated uh, countries, and and yes, they it, it, this this uh, great power competition influenced a lot. And but there are basically two two periods in the 19th century. So at the very beginning, um, there was only uh, one great power with the capacity to long uh, to. To, to lend via private investors which was the the, the Great Britain um, and there is little interference during this time um, there is very little diplomatic interference but this grows over time as France becomes a little richer thanks to the industrial revolution the Germans become rich uh, thanks to the industrial revolution and they have this surplus capital same story and they begin to they begin to uh, uh, lend to other countries especially France but but the French and the German were not uh, were not opaque about their intentions uh, they, many times the, the French and the German governments uh, negotiated the terms of the loan on behalf of the private investors right and they negotiated the loans with the, with the, uh, with the countries with other countries and once the loan was uh, the, the terms were uh, agreed, they left. Uh, they they left the, the private investors to basically to operate uh, the, and to execute the the agreement. So in response to this, and also in response to, um, I don't want to go into many details, but uh, so there's a chapter about the elite replacement within the uh, uh, within the administration and and executive uh, branch in the in the in the in the UK. Basically, the British say, well. Uh, uh, a lot, uh, the, the, the vast majority of our capital is invested overseas. It's not invested at home. And actually the industrialists in the UK were really pissed off with, the, with these investors because they were not putting the money uh, uh, in, in the factories in the UK. They were putting the money overseas. Uh, so there were a lot of tensions uh, internally. But uh, the British government says that a lot of money uh, was at stake and they started to uh, help to help uh, the the, the investors. Uh, So basically, you you see this confluence of private interest of lenders and uh, geopolitical uh, um, considerations of the great powers, and that basically uh, accelerates foreign lending, accelerates extreme conditionality and facilitates uh the uh, receiver the basically the execution of extreme con- conditionality the the receiverships and and debt equity swaps and that creates this big uh uh debt mess uh by 1914 and basically over over many decades um uh, and until the 1990s, you don't see the same the same level of uh, external finance in the world because it created a lot of of, of troubles of problems that were really hard to, to solve. And 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 in the meantime, the the uh, countries in in the global south were dealing with these massive debts that they had accumulated by 1914. And that's basically this persistence, right? It's really hard to wash out uh, this debt if you don't have resources to to, uh, to finance and to build infrastructure and when many of these infrastructures were already leased to uh, finance investors um, uh, over 50 60 years uh, because of the uh, loans that you got before 1914 so that's why these these agreements are very sticky they, it's hard to get rid of uh, get rid of them and that's why they help us explain. Uh, state capacity nowadays. It's not that it's the only explanation. That's not what the point that I make in this book is. That uh, it's an additional explanation, right? So if we think in we think in statistical terms, explains part of the variance of state capacity nowadays.
1: Let me ask you one one final question that um, I asked to all my guests, which is why writing a book, right, in in a context in which. Um, most of the diffusion of uh, academic knowledge uh, takes place in journals, for instance, Why writing a book. I know that in political science, uh, that's much more common than in, in economics, uh, uh, from where most of my guests frequently come. But uh, what, what, what's your rationale? Why spending, I don't know how many months, probably several years writing, writing this book?
0: Yes, actually, yes. It took six six years <laughs> of, of my life to write this book uh, because it, it required reading a lot of, of history. And again, I'm not an, a historian or economic historian uh, in training. So I also had to learn uh, who who is who in in every, every field. And there are several uh, case, uh, these are vignettes, more than case studies. Uh, but I also collected these, these a couple of uh new data sets on, on external finance um and it it involves going to the archives uh a, f- a few times and and g- basically gaining some clarity about uh, what was about what was going on so uh basically i had too many questions to be answered in in uh, one paper to two papers and i what I try to do in this book is to connect these questions. That some of these questions cannot be treated in isolation. Uh, I wanted to make a big emphasis on on the need to understand the relationship between uh, uh, debt and taxes, um, because this is not necess- they are not necessarily complementary. Uh, this is the way that we think about debt and taxes in, in 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 Western Europe, right? North Wingers. Basically, it was a negotiation about debt and taxes. But it's well, maybe you can float debt, but maybe you don't pay taxes. Uh, you don't float taxes, so what happens then uh well uh to begin with you don't build a tax administration right uh or you don't tax people who you, sh- you should be uh taxing um so there were many questions um and 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 that were related to each other um, and there is and, and and basically uh maybe your audience um has only a small representation of political science, so I'm gonna I'm gonna say this. Uh, we, political science has a, a very strict uh, um, word uh, limit <laughs> in the top journals, so we uh, we usually have to write papers uh, under ten thousand words, and 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 they are, they are pretty strict about about that. And it's that's not the most uh, uh, convenient and welcoming format for this kind of research. So basically, it was a combination of interest and also uh, opportunities that led me to to write uh, a book uh, rather than a series of, of papers.
1: Well, I'm I'm very happy that you decided to write the book. It's uh, it's a fascinating book. I. Learn a lot from reading it. Uh, It goes much more like much beyond um, just international finance issues, right? That's something I I wanted to tell you. Like I, I felt that it uh, it taught me a lot about why the world looks the way it looks now, and 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 I really I was really glad of feeling that while reading it and while talking to you. This was very fun. Thanks a lot, Didac, for. Uh, for being here with us um and i hope to to see you soon
0: um, thank you thank you very much and also thank you for producing this uh public good to the to the discipline